Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Well, good morning. How are we doing? Fall is here, whether you like it or not. I've seen a lot of shackets today, so I'm proud of you <laughs> for uh, going in your basement and pulling out your, uh, your fall and winter attire. It's pretty exciting to wear something warm. My name is Trey. I get to be the pastor here. If it's your first time, welcome. If it's your 500th time, still welcome. Uh, Tara, thanks for sharing your story. You are a blessing to us and a gift. And um, I hope that not only you, but everyone here feels welcome, and we hope that you believe that. Uh, one of the cool things about being a pastor that is hard sometimes, but also just really cool, is the fact that everyone is so different, has so much uh, different baggage or stories or uh, gifts or skills, and uh, though it's like messy almost all the time, it's so cool, because it's what the church is supposed to look like, uh, and so just grateful for that, and hopefully that was encouraging to you. We are in week two of the book of John, as Adam uh, mentioned, and so if you want to turn there, you totally can. Uh, but we are spending, we as a church like to spend our, take our time uh, in different books of the Bible. And so John, we're going to be spending the next several months in and uh, just kind of going through some different passages of John because John is one of the four what we call gospel accounts or stories of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, we want to focus on some unique pieces that John talks about or language that he uses that the other three gospels don't use. Um, um, smart scholar people call the first three Gospels the synoptic Gospels because they're very similar, they're in sync, they share a lot of passages. John is what they call the fourth Gospel because it's just kind of like paved his own path, doesn't believe in fences or guidelines. It's just like, I'm going to do my own thing. Um, but what's cool about John is, he is he's really upfront in some areas and he's also very intentionally saturated words and passages with deep meaning. So it's really fun to kind of get to dive into those and, and figure out what they mean and stuff like that. So second week in, I just want to give you a 30-second review of week one. Week one is the first five verses, which starts off with in the beginning, uh, which is John's way of drawing listeners into the beginning of the creation story and saying, like, hey, you know creation? Well, in the beginning, there's this thing called the word, and we know the word as the audible words of God. Now, if you're a Jewish listener at the time, which maybe this was written anywhere from 50 or 60 AD to 130, 140 AD, and you're a Jewish person, you know God as Yahweh, the one true God, whom they follow through laws and through the tabernacle and through um, him's presence being in the Holy of Holies. And so in the beginning was the word, John is starting to be provocative to these Jewish people. And even to us, although a lot of us I think, lead first with Jesus, so it's not that foreign to think about Jesus and then God the Father, but these Jewish people are like, what are you talking about? And so John is saying the Word was God. So the words of God, the embodiment of his heart and actions becomes tangible through what we say his words, but then becomes a person, and so we get to see the heart and the will of God through him becoming a person. So that's what last week was focused on. This week, we're going to hit on two, two themes um, in the second part of the passage today, but the first part is, is just talking a little bit about John the Baptist, so different John. The author of John is John, the son of Zebedee, one of the 12 disciples that Jesus has that walks closely with him throughout his time. John the Baptist, different John. Um, 
And John the Baptist was, he's in all four gospel accounts, and he's what we would call the forerunner of Jesus. Basically, his job is to create hype around Jesus' kingdom and ministry before he gets there. And so in the same way, when you go to a concert and, uh, you know, you want to go listen to NF, but you have to listen to Corday first, and maybe you're a Corday fan, but maybe you're not, it gets you in the mood of music, right? And you get, you, you're just body, your senses, everything, your excitement gets ready. And, you know, a lot of times they're not even going to use all the lights and the crazy show and all that. Uh, but then when the opener comes out, it's like crazy awesome, right? Or maybe it's more, um, more obvious when you go to see a comedian, right? If you want to go see Nate Bergazzi, uh, and you go there, and then you have to listen to, like, someone from a farm town in Indiana, and you're like, I didn't pay for this. I paid for Nate Bergazzi. But that person's job is to what? It's to get you comfortable, to get you laughing a little bit, right? And sometimes they're not funny at all, but you still kind of get in, like, the laughing feel, right, where it's on the tip of your tongue. And it prepares you to be able to fully receive what Nate Bergazzi is going to deliver, which is great, right? So in the same way, that's what John the Baptist's role is, is that he is preparing the hearts of the Jewish people for God being Yahweh saves the word God with us, Emmanuel, and being the savior of our sins. And so John starts baptizing people, and he's baptizing them for the repentance of their sin, which, you know, as a Jewish person or a Jewish leader was just extremely scandalous because your sins were atoned for through sacrifice. You wouldn't be baptized and repent of your sins. That wouldn't, you know, what would you, you wouldn't be saved. So John is, is getting the, these people ready for this, and, and then um, John, who's writing, John, uh, this disciple who's writing this, talks about John. He says, a man came sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light who we know last week. Jesus is the light and the life. And so that everyone might believe in him, he himself was not the light, John the Baptist, but he came to testify about the light, Jesus. The true light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world, and he was in the world, and the world was created by him, but the world did not recognize him. See, right now, John does this unique thing where he's not always going chronological. He zooms out now, and he's summarizing the whole narrative and story of Jesus. As you can tell by his language, he's saying he came into the world. Some people believed him, some people didn't. He's zooming out, and then he'll zoom back in. So he does that a lot in different parts of the book, but he wants us to know some people will not recognize him. Some people will deny it. Some people will turn away. Uh, I like the language that we talked about last week where basically Jesus is is always there and always present. It's just whether or not you acknowledge him. Um, Because in the words of John, Jesus was present in creation in all things, not only John says, but in Colossians, have been created in him and through him and for him. So the breath that you have now is grateful from Jesus. The life that you have, the skills you have on, on the physical world is a gift from Jesus, but also there's this spiritual reality as well and a new life in that. And that's what John starts to talk about and build Uh, a narrative around. Then he says, uh, he came to what was his own, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who have received him, those who, John's very important about what belief is, believe in his name, which we'll get to over the coming weeks. He has given the right to become God's children. And these are children not born by human parents or human desire or a husband's decision, but by God and God alone. And so as we just pause here for a little bit before we get into our main passage, John is preparing the hearts of people to see the light for what it truly is. And one of the hardest things to teach about this passage, the book of John, for us as 21st century listeners is that we have not been um, acclimated 
in, in a transformation from being Jewish and following God in this, you know, in this sort of God up here and, and, and present every once in a while down the temple um, to Jesus, like, being who he is and among us. It's for us, it's, we kind of know when we learn this story, we learn Jesus pretty quickly. Like, he's kind of our selling point, if you will. <laughs> and so it's not that hard to be like, oh, yeah, Jesus. And then you read the Old Testament and the stories of the Jewish people, and it's easy to sort of see where they're at and where they're going into Jesus. But people listening at this time did not have this framework. And they are questioning, was this Jesus guy really the Messiah? Was he the sent one of God? Was he really who he says he was? And so when we read this, we have to keep that in mind because what John is saying right now is just borderline heresy to these people, right? It's crazy. It's impossible to imagine. Um, But what he does by preparing us is he starts off with John the Baptist, which all four of the Gospels do. And what I love about John, uh, John's writing about John the Baptist is that he doesn't focus much on John himself, but more just on what he was called to do. And I think about that, and I think about our call is the same way. Like, are we recognized more for who we are and how awesome we are or the message or person that we're representing? Um, you know, a great, I think, uh, affirmation at the end of your life is not that you were a great person, but that you reveal Jesus to other people. And that was your main call as a witness. I think about the quote uh, by Count Nicholas Zinzendorf. He was famous for coining the phrase, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten which, I don't know about you, does not sell T-shirts. Um, uh, not a great bumper sticker. People would probably not be super excited about that one. Uh, but what is also crazy is Count Nicholas Zinzendorf is, was in charge and responsible for starting the probably largest revival in the history of human existence, which we'll talk about him next week, so be excited for that. Uh, but you would not think a guy that quotes that uh, would be a guy who was now unforgettable, uh, but his heart for just being a witness and living that out is something that was beautiful and that John the Baptist reveals in his early statements. And then John uh, starts to talk about this difference between people receiving him and people not receiving him and, and the reality of that. And we read the stories of the Gospels. We see Jesus sometimes at the height of his ministry, meaning like the most people that were surrounding him or following him. And he gives him these super lofty callings. He's like, look, you got to eat my body, drink my blood, um, follow me, die to yourself, right? Take up your cross. And people are just like, nope, I'm out, right? Too much. And these people walk away. They don't believe that it's true life. They don't believe that it's life-changing. And, um, and so we have to deal with that reality. But on the other hand, John is probably the most encouraging for us. Like if you're a new believer, you're questioning faith, you want to know what belief even is. John is the book to read because John, as he says in chapter 20, verse 31, Jesus came so that you might receive life and life to the fullest. And so when we think about, man, like what is the point of John? And as we're studying this over the next several months, what is life for me? What does that look like? Now, life for you might be happiness, right? And if it's based on happiness, then that's not great when you're following Jesus because there's times where you follow Jesus and your life's really hard. And then you're like, man, my life is not good. But if life is less about the feeling of happiness and more about the deep yearning for purpose, and I would say, like, a calling and fulfillment of our lives is crea- of being created in the image of God, then we start to see life occurring in our lives that is not just good or bad, but is, is meaningful in what John is getting at. So as he says that, he wants us to know, though, that Jesus is adopting you into a family of God. I think that's really important, this idea of do- adoption that will be a, a trend throughout the book of John. 
And I love how he says, like, it doesn't have anything to do with your last name or who your husband is or your family. Like, I love that because he's, he's slashing at the way that things work in the world and honestly still work today. There's a lot of countries where, depending on the name you have, is what you get. And in fact, I would even say the name you have or the status you have or the, your parents' job or title, right, is a lot of what the privilege that you get. And John right away is like, yeah, God doesn't, God doesn't deal with any of that. Belief in Jesus allows for us to be God's children. I love Abraham uh, Cooper's statement. He says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain over all human existence over which Jesus, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. As we just process on that, John is going to really let you know that Jesus wants all of us. Not just you, all of us. But you is awesome that Jesus wants you. That's great. But his heart is for everyone. It's kind of hard to reconcile sometimes. You think about, man, I have like a loved one or a significant other, a really good friend, sibling, and you have a deep love for them. And you're like, I spend a lot of time with them, thinking about them, money on them, serving them, right? And then Jesus does that for literally everyone, it's just hard to comprehend. It's kind of like when you're little and people are like talking about Santa Claus and you're like, I just don't get it. You know, how's it going to be all these homes? And if all these kids are saying I'm giving them cookies and whatever, like he's not going to have time for all them. Like he's got places to be, you know? And I don't know about you, but that was, that was the, that was the, that was what killed the belief in Santa for me. For those of you who still believe, I'm really sorry, but it's just not possible. Okay. But for some, somehow, it, it sounds silly, but God has a deep love and affection and desire for each one of us, no matter how terrible we are. So let's read what God decides to do about it. Verse 14, this is our main passage I want to focus on. Now the word became flesh, took up residence among us. We saw his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth, who came from the Father, John, John the Baptist testified about him and shouted out, This one was the one about whom I said, He who comes after me is greater than I, because he existed before me, remember, since creation. For we have all received from his fullness one gracious gift after another. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came about through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only one himself God, who is in closest fellowship with the Father, has made God known. Now, I just want to take a moment here um, because I'm just reading it. Verse 18 here is helping us set the scene for what John is saying in this passage. Because remember, if you're a first century Jew and you're listening to this, you know Yahweh, God the Father. That's all you know. And so this Jesus guy, you're like, who is this, the word? Like, what does this mean? Because they're starting to think, is it two gods? What, you know, we, we talked about this last week, the different beliefs and how the people have deviated from true orthodox and believing what, what they would about Jesus. And he's saying, look, the only one, no one has ever seen God, the only one himself, God, who is in closest fellowship with the Father has made God known. What he's saying is, look, you know God, God the Father, and this word, the word that is spoken from God is the only person who knows and has seen God truly. And this word is who we're talking about as Jesus, who in verse 14, it says, became flesh. Now, if you, uh, if you're a Nerdy scholar, you like to read commentaries. This is what a lot of scholars would call the passage of incarnation. Uh, the word incarnation, basically just uh, the Latin word incarno means meat. So when you enjoy a good carne asada, you're not too far off from the meaning of the word. Carne, it basically means meat. 
so you can think about this. When you think about Jesus became flesh, you could think Jesus became carne asada. He became meat. And that's literally what the word means. Flesh in the Greek, the word sarex, means flesh. If you were a doctor or you're in the uh, medical field, I'll give you the exact definition here. The soft substance of the living body which covers the bones and is permeated with blood. So there you go. You get a really nice definition of flesh. Uh, I almost think of it as skin. Like God put on skin, and then I was like, he put on like a skin suit, and then I'm like, this is getting kind of weird. So let's just stick with became flesh, okay? Uh, and, and, and in that, what, he, what John is saying is God became human. God became man. Now, like I said, for us, we're like, yeah, Jesus is a guy. Maybe you think of him as uh, white, blue-eyed, blonde-haired Jesus, who was not what he looked like. But like we think of him as a person, right? We see maybe portraits of him or paintings of him, or there's a like when we pray, we think of Jesus in our heads. There's a vision of a human, right? God the Father is sometimes like a human, like Santa Claus, right? Like on a chair with a beard, typically. But, but Jesus is a human who became flesh and dwelt among us. And John is telling these listeners, hey, um, no big deal, but like God is, he's human. Like there's a human, Here's, here he is. And to them, this would be unheard of, right? Remarkable. And thinking through the implications of this, and at one hand, Jesus becoming flesh is a big deal, but the second piece is what adds even greater weight to it. The second piece of that verse says, and took up residence among us. So Jesus became meat, became flesh, and then took up residence among us. Some of your translations might say dwell, like he became flesh and dwelled with us or dwelled among us. The word here, uh, skeneo, is often translated to dwell. Um, the reason why the NAT uses the word residence is because it's getting at the idea of what the word truly means. The word in its best definition means to fix one's tabernacle. To fix means to like create in place. And uh, I don't know about you, but when we use, if you've ever used the word tabernacle, typically you're referring to this building in the Old Testament that was very specific. If you read in the Old Testament and you start reading and you're like, all of a sudden you get to all these just pages of like, it looks like a Home Depot shopping list, right? And you're like, okay, going to turn through that one. Not going to pull out any devotional there, right? That's, that's the tabernacle, right? This much acacia wood, this many cubits, this many pounds, with this many, you know, uh, I was going to say electricians, not, not, not a thing, but, right? And it's like all this preparation for the tabernacle. However, the word tabernacle really just means place of dwelling. So hypothetically, you could tell your friend, you'd be like, hey, why don't you swing over to my tabernacle for a little bit, watch the game, right? That's actually fair. You could say that. Now, no one will. It's not going to be a cool new word. It's kind of weird. We always imply it as a holy place because of the tabernacle of God, the house of God. That's what we associate with. But the word tabernacle really just means place of dwelling. And so John is saying Jesus became flesh. He became human. He became meat. And he is tabernacling among you. I like some of the definitions of the, the word skeneo and the root word skeneo. It means tent or camp. I like to think about it like we're all just you know, we're just camping at Mount Zion, or, uh, not Mount Zion, um, Zion National Park. We all got tents, and Jesus is just chilling there in a tent with us, all having a good time, right? He's not like in this massive mansion. He's just chilling in a house, so just like us. And this is what John is getting at. He's saying, look, Jesus, God, the Word, not only became human, but he dwelled in a house just like you and I. And that's why the net says took residence. He lived on our block in our neighborhood in our condo, apartment complex. Like, it's crazy. Just like one of us. Now, 
like I said, I keep drawing back to first century Jewish people, but I mean, just try to put yourself in their shoes here. You've spent centuries with lots of oral tradition, rabbis, learning the, the Torah, the scriptures, the laws, memorizing them, living your whole life based on being clean and unclean. And then, uh, you know, this guy comes in and he writes this little story and he's like, yeah, the word became flesh. God became human. And then he was living among you. And I mean, you would just be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Because for centuries, they've spent all their energy and time making sure that these 10 commandments plus 600 more laws to be able to be the prototypical version of humanity that God was intending for them. That was the point of the law, was to show the heart of God through people on earth and how to live. And they failed miserably, but they still had their fail-safe. Their fail-safe was once, depending on the festival, twice a year, they would sacrifice a goat, right, or a lamb or a goat, and depending on the festival and how much money you had. And then they would atone for the sins of the people and the laws they broke, and then they would go into the holies of holies, right, and do this thing, right? And it was only like one time a year, and even then it was the high priest, and they tied a rope around his foot in case things went bad. They had to pull him out, right, because you can't go in there and pull him out. It was a big deal. No, if you were Jewish, chances are you were never going to encounter God unless you were the high priest. And typically, if you weren't born in the right tribe, you weren't going to be the high priest. So chances are you have followed a God with all of not only just like religious laws, but morality with ethical and ethnic laws. Like every component of your life has been centered around this God whom you have never stepped face to face with. And John even says no one's really seen God except for this Jesus who he's talking about. And so as he says this, you just have to like, your wheels may be turning about like, man, this is like, this is ridiculous. How crazy this would be. How remarkable this would be if it were true. I want to give you a good example. I wrote a little allegory. um, And I hope this puts it into picture. Imagine that you, as a child, were just obsessed with computers. And you were were a big like Microsoft fan, you know, like Android. If you still have one, you're like, nah, no iPhone, Android's better, which it really is in a lot of ways. I have an iPhone, but I get it. Let's just say you're like obsessed, right? You like love software. You want to be an engineer. You, your dream is to like work for a high up position in Microsoft. That'd be that'd be the best. So you go to like you know software camp in the summers, and you're doing all these fun coding things on the side, and you got your rigged up computer, and then you do in some internships. You apply at, at MIT. You get into MIT for software engineering. Um, it's really hard, but you crush it. You give your life to it, and then out of college you apply for Microsoft, and it's your, your entry-level position, so it's nothing, nothing crazy, but you apply to basically be a data systems engineer who repairs systems and things like that, and you get the job. However, your job is not going to be in Redmond, Washington at the headquarters or in the Silicon Valley. It's at a new data warehouse that's, I don't know, maybe in New Albany. That's where we're putting all the data storage places now. And so you move to the beautiful, wonderful city of Columbus, Ohio, and you commute to New Albany. And on your first day, you got to go, and you got you know, you to watch the orientation videos, right? Like being oriented into the cult that is Microsoft, right? And, uh, and Bill Gates comes on the screen, whom you've read all his biographies and all the stories about him. You know about all his philanthropic work and his genius creative, creative systems, and oh, you're just obsessed. And he says to you, like, this, like, sort of pithy and genuine, like, welcome to the family, you know, like, you're one of us now. And you're like, thanks, Bill, you have 220,000 kids then, because you have so many employees. I did the math, and if Bill spent one day with each of them, he wouldn't, for the rest of his life, he wouldn't even get through 10% of his employees. 
So unfortunately, I don't thank your family. But he says, hey, we're so glad that you're working with Microsoft and furthering the, the technological future of the world. And I'm so glad you're family, right? And you're like, wow. You know, and you're, you're, you know that this is a step to where you want to be. And maybe you'll be in Bill Gates' room one of these days, right, as like a tech you know, I don't know. I don't know what level you have to be to be up there. But you, right? So anyways, long story short, video's done. You get going to work. Your manager's like trained you a little bit. Hey, you're going to go walk these aisles of these data systems and see if any of them are broken or repaired. That's basically what you do. If you've ever been in one of these buildings, it's really just like a warehouse with aisles. Typically, a lot of them are climate controlled. And it's just endless amounts of storage, just like hard drives everywhere. I don't know if you know that's how they control all the data. Just these places, right? So you're walking down the aisle and you see one that doesn't look right and you like realize, oh, it's broken. You're trying to troubleshoot it with this stuff that you've been given and you're struggling, okay? You're like, I can't do this first day. It's not looking good. And you're like having this crisis here because you can't fix this broken hard drive. And so you're like looking around and you see someone a couple feet over from you another guy that's working on like basically a similar one that had broken down. And you're like terrified, but you're like, man, I gotta ask this person because I don't want a manager to know. Like this would be bad if the first day I can't even do my job. And you turn over and you say, hey, like, would you be willing to help me out with this? It's not going well. I can't figure it out. And lo and behold, the person beside you is Bill freaking Gates. <laughs> and he's just wearing your like, normal like, outfit you're wearing with his little lanyard on. And he's just having a great time fixing this hard drive. That literally is the most menial thing that you could be doing. And, if, and I know maybe you're not a big Bill Gates fan, but if you just think about like, he owns a $2.35 trillion company with 220,000 employees. Why in the world would he be wasting his time, talent, his energy at a small data center in New Albany, Ohio? The question is, or the answer is, there is no, there is no answer. It's dumb, it's stupid, and it's foolish. You don't lead a company by hanging out in New Albany with a data center at a menial level job fixing hard drives. You hire thousands of people to do that so you can do the high level stuff that is being the owner and boss and CEO, right, and all this stuff. That is a fraction of the feeling at which you will feel when you realize that Jesus is sitting right beside you and wants to help you with your problems. We call that sin, right? And uh, whether it's been done to us, we've done it, it's been handed to us, thanks, thanks mom and dad or generations behind us. Jesus wants to come alongside you and help you with that. Now, that's, that, that's cool. I think that's cool. I think that's nice. I think it's cool if Bill Gates is like, I'll help you. But what's another level of love that I find even harder to comprehend is the fact that Bill Gates, if you will, or Jesus, uh, wants nothing more than to help you. Like, he, he's like, man, I would love to help you and do whatever I can to make this work. Like, this is my joy. This will make my day. And you're like, no, it won't. Are you kidding me? There's like... 2.35 trillion other things that could make your day. And here you are being like, yeah, I'd love to help, right? That's another level of Jesus' love. Now, the third level, which I think is the deepest and hardest to reconcile, and the one that keeps me up at night in a good way sometimes, is the fact that not only will Jesus willingly and happily and desire, his deepest heart inclination is to step into your mess and help you with it, but he also does it for the person who's not a fan of him, for the person who is an enemy of him, for the person who is resistant, who slanders, who swears at, who pushes away with violence and malice and anger, and Jesus' love is still just as deep and just as full and just as grace and truth-filled, as John says, to anyone else than it would be to this person. That, my friends, is why we're all obsessed with this Jesus guy around here, because that level of love 
is not found anywhere here. And we get these small glimpses. Maybe you're married and you're like, sometimes my spouse sucks and I love them. And you feel like, I'm like Jesus a little bit right here, right? (laughs) You're like, good for me. Made it through a day. We're not divorced. This is great. But man, I tell you what, when they start punching and kicking and screaming and cursing you and stealing your stuff and calling you names, it's pretty hard to stick around. And it's pretty hard to genuinely want to continue to love them. And it's pretty hard for that to be the deepest desire of your heart and your soul. Right? Jesus' heart, there's only one scripture in the whole Bible about Jesus' heart. It's gentle and it's lowly. It's gentle and it's meek. It's gentle and it's humble is what it means. It means that he loves wearing the, the Microsoft scrubs of the normal menial job with the polo and the little whatever lanyard and just chilling in New Albany in the dad. Like he loves that. He finds genuine joy in that. He finds himself to be wanting to be nowhere else than in your presence, helping you and ministering to you. And that is in the smallest fraction that I can explain uh, with a silly Bill Gates analogy, the true love of Jesus Christ. And for us, if we take a moment and we sit in that, you know, I, I like to just think about if I am that person and I look over and it's Bill Gates, like what is my, like what am I feeling, what is my response? I think about, you know, like being a, a Swifty, trying to, trying to be contextual here to the appropriation of today, uh, being a Swifty and Taylor Swift fan, if you didn't know, um, and like, you know how some super fans are like so excited that like when they get the moment to meet her or anyone famous, they just freeze they're like, they just like, and, they, and then she's trying to shake your hand, and you're just like, and then everyone's like, come on, shake your hand, be normal, you know, and you just blow it. Like, that's how I think I'd feel a little bit. I'd be like, what in the world is he doing here? And, he, and I gotta like, I gotta, like, I, this isn't a mess, it's fine, you know, like, you try to hide your stuff, and you're like, no, 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 don't look now, you know, let me tuck in my shirt, right? It, we feel like we have to give ourselves a certain angle before God, like as if he doesn't already know what's behind that facade. And, and there's just this deep sense, this John says, of both grace and truth. And what he's doing here is he's, he's bringing it from creation to fall to the law to Jesus. If you notice his pattern, he says, um, Jesus existed before you in verse 15, which he talked about earlier. Then he says, for we have all received from his fullness one gracious gift after another. And what he's referring to is creation, breath as it is, life, family, living in a world as image bearers, experiencing good joy, right? And then from there, he says, for the law then was given through Moses. And he's saying, God gave you laws so that you might experience and understand and live out the heart of God on earth. And then from there, we obviously know that didn't go very well. Lots of reasons why. Then... Finally, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The very words, the very intent, the very heart of God became flesh, and he's living in your neighborhood, and he wants more than anything to be present and to be with you. And the grace and truth that is given to us is the ultimate freedom and the ultimate life that we receive when we believe. I um, think about, you know, like, This quote someone once said, they asked a question, it was kind of rhetorical, but it says, what type of king steps down from his throne to sit in the muck and mire of the world? And this question has been baffling other religions for six, 7,000 years, since world religions were a thing, is what kind of God does that? That's weak, that's that's, um, submissive, it feels like, to the world and to the desires of it. What kind of God does that? And so as we wrap up here, 
uh, and invite Nick up, and we'll invite the band up in a second. I want to close with this quote. I love this quote from Henry Nouwen in a, his book called The Selfless Way of Christ, Downward Mobility in the Spiritual Life. And basically the whole point of the book is talking about how Jesus' ministry, instead of going up with more influence, more po- popularity, more fame, he actually stifles all of those things, and he ends up losing all influence and all power, and he dies outside the city gates on a cross alone. Um, so let me read this. And we'll close here. It says, The divine way is indeed the downward way. In the center of our faith as Christians stand, this is the mystery that God chose to reveal the divine, mystery by unreserved submission to the downward pull. God not only chose an insignificant people to carry the word of salvation through the centuries, he not only chose a small remnant of those people to fulfill God's promises, not only chose a humble girl in an unknown town in Galilee to become the temple of the word, but God also chose to manifest the fullness of divine love in a man whose life led to a humiliating defeat and death outside the walls of the city. Henry goes on to say, this mystery was so deeply ingrained in the minds and hearts of early Christians that they sang in the hymn of Christ. This is uh, Philippians 2, 6 through 8. His state was divine, yet he did not cling to his equality with God, but emptied himself to assume the condition of a slave and become as we are, and being as we are, he was humbler yet, even to accepting death, death on a cross. John is telling us God became human just like us. He tabernacled, he camped, he dwelled and took up residence among us so that we might experience full grace and truth and belief and life to its fullest. So as we transition to a time of formation we offer every Sunday, we give you four things that we as a church want to prod and encourage you in so that we create formed people in the image of Christ, not consumers. And so we got people in the back. We'd love to pray for you about anything and everything. It's confidential. Uh, we encourage you just to sit and reflect on this as, as reflection is something our culture rarely does. Uh, we also believe giving, uh, we call it bringing, is an act of worship because we're bringing back to God what is already his. And then we also have the breading cup in the front and in the back. It's gluten-free, and you can partake in that. That is a symbol and a reminder of the flesh that Jesus took on, was broken and, and bled and killed for us. And so we take that as a symbol and a reminder. And so anyone who believes in that truth can partake in that at any point um, during the next song as we have some time and then we'll sing and close. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.